0: All right, well, last week we launched into that glorious grace. We're going to see more of that specifically next week as we look at Ephesians chapter 2. But we started this book of Ephesians. We're going to be in it 13 weeks. Uh, Some of the greatest preachers that we have ever known spent 61 weeks on this book. Uh, We're going to spend 13. And so we want you guys to keep up with that. Stephen showed you at the beginning, if you were here, a study guide that we have for you. It's just $5. You can get it at the Connect desk. We want you to dive into the glorious grace of God over these next 13 weeks because it is so, so rich in the book of Ephesians. And we're going to continue in that this morning. And if you missed last week, it started, the Apostle Paul started with this explosion of praise that Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is really one long run-on sentence in the original language, and it's this explosion of praise that Paul looks at who we are in Christ, that we're adopted, that we're redeemed, that we're forgiven, that we're united, that we're sealed. He looks at all of that, and he doesn't even have time for a breath. And that as we look at that, that we would be overwhelmed and praise with that truth as well. And, and the reason we're overwhelmed, the reason why it's an explosion of praise is because it's not who we are in ourselves. It's not who we are in our accomplishments. No, it's who we are in Christ. That that Christianity, at its core, before you ever get to what you do, it's about what God has done for you in Christ. And maybe you're new to church or new to the Bible or new to Jesus and that seems weird to you because when you think of church and you think of God, you think of religion. And you think of rituals, and you think of maybe reciting some things, but but what Paul is starting out with, what Christianity starts out with, is what God has already done for you in Christ. And we need to keep that ever before us, don't we? And so this week, we sent you an email. If you get our emails, you got this, a graphic that had that listed for you. You're adopted, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're united, you're sealed, We said to to tape it to your mirror, to place it in your dash, to tat it on your forearm. Whatever you need to do to remember who you are in Christ. Because if you don't keep it in front of you, you will forget. And day in and day out, we forget. But it is the power of Christ in us. And we don't need to forget that. So that's how Paul starts Ephesians, that's how Christianity starts. It's glorious grace. But it's interesting as he moves into our passage today, he essentially says, This is who you are, but this is who I pray you become. You see, the reality is who we are positionally before God should affect who we are practically in our lives. So Paul has just laid out positionally, this is who you are in Christ. But many of you look at that and you're like, I don't feel blessed. I don't feel adopted into God's family. I don't feel redeemed. I don't feel uh, forgiven, united, sealed. I don't feel all those things all the time. And Paul knows that. He's in tune with that. So he prays for you. He prays for the church at Ephesus, that who they are positionally should be lived out practically. And he shares that prayer with us. He's gracious enough to do that. Look at verse 15 with me as we launch into that prayer. It says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. His prayer comes out of an unceasing thankfulness for primarily two things. Look at the text with me their faith in Jesus and their love for people. We like to say around here that love moves. That as we have faith in Jesus, as we love him, as our affections grow for him, that we begin to love people. That as you look at the Bible, as you look at Ephesians, those things aren't separated. They're walking in step with one another. If you love Jesus and have faith in him, you'll love other people. That's the evidence that you do love God. And Paul has heard about this in the Ephesians He's heard about them living this out, and he expresses his thankfulness for their faith and love in prayer. And it's interesting, as you look at Paul's different letters in the New Testament, you see a lot of prayers like this. You see Paul saying he, he's praying for people. He's remembering people in his prayers. And if you look closely at those prayers and all these letters, there's almost no mention of help for circumstance. Have you ever noticed that? Paul doesn't pray for, for help, not even in, in this as we go on to read. doesn't pray for help for circumstances, but he could have, right? Think about this context. This is the early church. Christianity is, is new. Not everybody's a big fan, right? There's persecution. There's hardship. There's physical pain in some cases. In some cases, look at the book of 1 Peter. People are displaced from their home. Paul himself, he goes on to die for the faith. Almost all the apostles go on to die for their faith. Listen, Paul is not ignorant to that truth. Paul is in tune with that. He's aware of that even personally in his life. He talks about death. He says to live as Christ, to die is gain. Paul knew that death was coming for him. He knew these people he's writing to would be persecuted and experience harm but he doesn't pray for help for circumstances. He prays for something else. He prays that they would know God. Look at verse 17. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You see, in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of even persecution. They didn't need prosperity. They didn't even primarily need provision. What they needed is the person of God. Do you see that? He prays that they would know God. Whatever circumstances they find themselves in, whatever circumstances you find yourself in this morning, you need to know God. And some of you are thinking, really? Really, that's that's all we got is to know God? I mean, I I need some help. I need some hope for my real situations and struggles in my life. And I think a lot of us think that way, and I think that way at times, because we we really limit what knowledge is biblically. And and so I want to walk us through, I want to give us a framework for knowledge. We're going to be talking about what Paul prays that we would know about God, but we need to first frame up knowledge. If you're taking notes, you can write these three things down. This knowledge of him, what, what does that imply biblically? the first thing, it's informational. It's informational. that I remember when I was in college, I had grown up in the church. Uh, I grew up in a church where I was in service like this Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And it was all different services. Like, I was in church a lot. I was exposed to the Bible a lot, but I didn't really know my Bible. And it It really showed up in college when I started to study the Bible. I actually started to read it on my own. Maybe some of you guys have experienced this as well. I actually started to read the Bible on my own, and I began to read things like in Luke. And I began to read things in Mark. And I began to see some similarities. And I thought, maybe there's some duplicate pages in here. Maybe I should exchange this. Maybe I got a bad Bible because there's some things in Luke that seem really similar to the book of Mark. Like, what is going on with that? And I didn't realize all these years in the church, growing up as a church kid, I didn't realize that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were four accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. I didn't realize there were four perspectives, four angles on the same person and work of Jesus. I just didn't know that. Listen, we need to know about God informationally. We need to know God's word. You need to know his character and his nature, his person and work. You need to know that information. There are 66 books, 40-plus authors written over 1,500 years. You need to know it. You need to memorize it. You need to meditate on it. You need to know that the backdrop for Ephesians is in the book of Acts chapter 19. You need to go home and read that. You need to know that. You need to know that who you are in Christ is laid out for you in chapter one, verses three through 14, that Paul doesn't even have time for a breath in the original language because he's excited about that. You need to to know that. You need to know that as you look at Ephesians, Paul refers to riches five times, grace 12 times, and glory eight times. You need to to know that chapters one through three of Ephesians are primarily what God has done And chapters 4 through 6 are primarily what we do in response. You need to know God and his word. You need to load your mind with thoughts of it. You will never get to a point in life where you know everything you need to know about God's word. You can study it for the rest of your life. And we need to make that investment because knowledge is informational, but it doesn't end there. It's also experiential. It's obedience to what you know. 1 John 2 says this, that we, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. See, I know a lot of us are in church and a lot of us do this a lot, especially in a place like Phoenix. We, we go to church. A lot of people go to church. And, and a lot of us, maybe even in this room, you come and you listen to a sermon and maybe you crack open a Bible or you open an app on your phone Maybe some of you go the extra mile and you take a few notes. Maybe, maybe, if you're just feeling crazy enough, you highlight a few key phrases. But then you leave and nothing about your life changes But then you come back next Sunday, and maybe you listen again, and maybe you laugh a little bit, maybe you get inspired, and maybe you highlight some things again, and maybe in between there you listen to a podcast of someone else preaching about the Bible, and maybe you laugh there and you get inspired there, but nothing changes. You see, the reality is when we do that, we're not producing fruit. We're compiling facts, and that's not the goal of knowledge. The the goal of knowledge is that you would experience it firsthand. That you would live what you know, that it would invade your schedule, your morning routine, your crisis at work, and your conflict at home. That you would experience the knowledge of God by obeying it, by doing what it says. That that's the goal of knowledge. How many of you have had those moments where you think you know something, and then you realize, I don't really know it. Maybe the budget's tight at home, the finances are a little bit tight, and you, you think, I know we shouldn't worry, because Jesus says, worrying doesn't add a single hour to your life, right? But as you look at the finances, and they're getting a little tight, the budget's getting a little tight, you begin to think, how are we going to survive? I mean, you walk into your wife, and you're like, babe, I think we've got to sell everything. I mean, I'm still getting to know your in-laws, but I think we've got to move in. I mean the kids, like, I don't know if they're gonna go to college. I mean, hopefully one of them is a, a superstar athlete so they can get a scholarship. Because everything's gotta go. Like, I don't know what we're gonna do, and what happens when you when your budget's tight. You worry. But but you know that Jesus says. Worrying doesn't help. It doesn't add a single hour to your life, but what do we do? We worry. Why? Because we we know it in our head. It's mental ascent, but it's not experiential knowledge. You think about when you share the gospel or have the opportunity to do that, and you know from the book of Romans that we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. You know that, right? But when you have the opportunity, maybe a friend, maybe a coworker, maybe a neighbor, maybe a family member, you have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. What do you immediately do? You start thinking, "Why? Well, it's not the right time." I mean, if I ask them to the church, I mean, they could say no. I mean, if I bring up Jesus in this moment, it could be awkward. And what happens? You're ashamed. But Romans says you shouldn't be ashamed. It's the power of God unto salvation. You shouldn't be ashamed. Where's the disconnect? You know it informationally, but you haven't experienced it. And all of us know in those same circumstances that when you experience it, then you really know it, don't you? Like When you go through a hard time and you actually have to put your hope in Christ and to get you through that situation, that's the only thing that will do that, man, you can say, I know the hope of God. When you go through a difficult time financially and you have to rely upon God for provision, you can say, yeah, we don't don't need to worry. God's got this. I've been there. I've seen it. I've done it. It's a whole other thing when you experience knowledge. And that as that happens, As you don't just memorize it, you live it. As you don't just study it, it studies you. As that happens, it changes you. It transforms you. And that's the third part of knowledge you can write down. It's transformational. Verse 18, it enlightens the eyes of your heart. And listen, that doesn't mean you finally get in touch with your emotions. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But it's more than that. That, that biblically, your heart is the core of who you are. It's your thoughts, it's your will, it's your affections. And what Paul is saying, that the eyes of your heart, the core of who you are, would be opened. That your core, the very essence of your being, would be changed by what you know about God. That... All of you, if you know Jesus, you've experienced this at some point in your life. If you have the Holy Spirit of God, your your eyes of your heart have been enlightened at one point, and you know what this is like. Maybe you're walking around, you're confused, you're looking at your circumstances. That's all you can focus on. Maybe you're looking at your sin and your sickness and your strife, and that's all that you can see. But in a moment, maybe you come, you listen, you do take notes, you hear in a sermon, and something convicts you. Maybe you start to walk in repentance. Maybe somebody prays for you. Maybe, maybe somebody speaks a word of encouragement over you. And the Holy Spirit begins to open the eyes of your heart, who you really are. And things change. Like the fog that you're in begins to dissipate. The curtains are drawn. And for the first time, you can see clearly your need and you can see his glorious grace. All of us have experienced that at one point or another if you know Jesus, and that's what Paul is going after when he says he wants you to have knowledge of God. It should be transformational, and so that's what knowledge is. When we talk about knowing God and we talk about knowing these things about God, that's what we're talking about. Is it informational? Yes. Is it experiential? Yes. Is it transformational? Yes. And so that's the knowledge of God that Paul is praying for you and for me, and the first think he wants you to know is this. It's the hope of God's calling. You see it in the second part of Ephesians 1, verse 18. It says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What's interesting as you look at this is his calling was just described in the first part of chapter one, right? That God has called you out. If you know him, he's called you out to be adopted, redeemed, forgiven, united, and sealed by God. That's your Calling. Verse 18 goes on to say that you're God's glorious inheritance. That Ephesians 2 says you're his workmanship. That in Christ, you are God's prized possession. That if you can picture a a masterpiece, a work of art that has a a curtain over it, then when you get to heaven, that curtain's going to be taken down and it is you. It's not the solar system, it's not the mountains, it's not the waterfalls. It's you. And not because we're so beautiful or we look good on a painting. It's because you are in Christ. You are his glorious inheritance. And I want you to think about this. Just consider this with me. If that is the case, if that's our future hope, if heaven with God as his called out, set apart inheritance is your ultimate destination, if you know Jesus, that's where you're headed, if that's the case, then what are you preparing for? What are you packing for, if you will, in life? If that's your destination, what are you preparing for? What are you packing for? My wife and I recently hiked Squaw Peak, and, uh, and our plan was actually to make it to the top. And so we needed to prepare for that, right? We needed to pack some things for that. We needed to wear certain clothes for that. And so we took water. I wore a hat, um, I wore shoes, right? I took my phone because I wanted to take pictures once I got to the top of the mountain. Or, in case I didn't make it to the top, I wanted to call for help. Right? So we prepared accordingly to Squaw Peak because we knew we were going to hike it. It wouldn't make sense, right, to drink a Route 44 Slurpee from Sonic before I hiked Squaw Peak. It wouldn't make sense for me to wear khakis and flip-flops before I hiked Squaw Peak. Why? Because I was hiking a mountain. Because I knew I had a destination in mind, and I had to prepare accordingly. You see, your future destination always changes your present day. And it does so with eternity. Paul Tripp, a Christian author, says, you don't need a better now. You need a hope to reshape you're here and now. You don't need a better now. You need a hope that reshapes your here and now. And a lot of us, I'm sure, long for that. As As you think about this glorious inheritance, this eternity with God that you're his forever, man, you'd love that to affect your job. You'd love that to penetrate your marriage. You'd love that to enter into your conflict, to your community. We'd love to have that. How do you know? Here's two questions I just want to give you. How do you know if your here now is reflecting your future hope? The first question is this Do I only live for self or, or do I live as well for others? Remember verse 15 faith in Jesus leads to love for people. You can't separate the two. That if you know your future hope in eternity, that you will begin to see beyond your, yourself and you'll begin to love other people. Do you only think about yourself? Everything is about, can we get our finances together? Can we get our schedule together? Can I get my fitness in order? Is everything only about you, or do you see other people? Second question, do you grumble more than you are grateful? This one is convicting, right? Do you grumble more than you are grateful? Do you have times in your life where you practice being thankful? Where you look at the conditions in your life, where you look at the people in your life and you don't analyze that and assess that to complain about that. you, You look at it and see, what can I be thankful for about my wife? What can I be thankful for about my friends? What can I be thankful for as I wake up in the morning, the new mercies that God has given me today? What can I be thankful for about my church? Listen, churches are sometimes the worst at this, right? We grumble about everything. We grumble about the lights. We grumble about the songs, the hymns, or choruses. We grumble about everything. Like, why does he do that? Why does she get to do that? We grumble about everything. Listen, as the church, we need to be grateful. Are you grateful? Do you have times where you set aside in life, like, man, I'm gonna think through why I'm grateful for the church. I'm just gonna celebrate that. We need to do that collectively. Why? Because we have a future hope in God. We're his glorious inheritance. That's what God says. What do you say? Are you grateful for that? Or do you just find ways to complain? Truly knowing our future hope reshapes our here and now. It moves us to valuable things like love and thankfulness. And it moves us away from less valuable things. You see, everything in life, worldly pleasures earthly ambitions those things fade don't they they seem like they won't fade right they seem like in the moment it seems like this could be the most fulfilling thing i've ever experienced but even that it eventually fades the other day in a box we found an old fuji digital camera you remember those right We found this old camera, and we looked at it, and we thought, how cute. Maybe we can give this to our seven-year-old daughter. She wants to take pictures. And listen, some perspective on that. Ten years ago, I bought that camera for my wife, and I saved up. It was the biggest investment of my life outside of wedding rings for that Fuji digital camera. And now we're letting our seven-year-old play with it as a toy. Things fade, don't they? You think about the Academy Awards. My wife said I should limit my sports analogies, so here it goes. (laughs) Movies, right? We can all relate to movies. (laughs) Even if you're a movie buff, like you know your movies. Who won Best Picture last year? Who, Who won Best Picture five years ago? Who won Best Picture 10 years ago? Can you name them all? Most of us wouldn't be able to do that, but yet in that moment when they win the Academy Award for Best Picture, what do they do? They're on the red carpet. Like we roll out a carpet for those people to pretend to be somebody else. <laughs> we usually ridicule that in life, but for them, we celebrate it. We give them a, a trophy, right? We, we celebrate that. They dress nice. They're on TV for the whole world to see. We celebrate that. We show their trailer over and over and over. But after a little while, what happens? That same movie that won Best Picture at the Academy Awards that celebrated is in a plastic case in a red box, melting away in the Phoenix Sun all alone. No one to even hit a button to eject it. Right? Because everything eventually fades. Some of you, as you look at your lives, you've spent years, some of you even decades, investing in things that fade in worldly success, in worldly status, in worldly satisfaction. And maybe for you, even the last few weeks or a month, if you look at your life, better yet, if you look at your calendar, if you look at your bank account, you're investing into things that fade. The time you spend on Facebook, looking for affirmation and approval. The money you spend on things. The times you spend working At your job, 60 to 70 hours, not because you're trying to be a God-honoring employee to your boss, but because you're obsessed with status. All of those things, they fade. And if you really assessed it in your own life, as you look at your investment into those things, you feel it's empty, right? There is a void. C.S. Lewis says that's by design. He said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You see, Paul is praying that you would know the hope of God's calling, that you are God's glorious inheritance, that in eternity, listen, you will be perfected, you will be his, and he will never let you go. That's your destination. Colossians 3 says you should set your heart and your mind on those things as you live here. Do you? Do you? Are you longing for that destination? Do you reorganize your finances around that destination? Where your money goes Jesus says where your heart is, there your treasure is. Are you reorganizing your finances around that eternal destination? Are you reorganizing your time, how you spend time with people, how you start your mornings? Are you waking up thankful, practicing thankfulness? It doesn't come naturally, right? You have to practice it. Are you doing that in light of what eternity holds for you? As you look at your destination, is it changing your present day? Are you packing the right things? Are you pursuing the right things? Paul is praying that you would, that your hope in eternity would reshape your here and now, your difficult circumstances, your glorious ones, that it would reshape it drastically because that's knowing the hope of God's calling. Do you see it? That's what Paul prays for you and I. We can experience that this morning. He also prays, that we would know the greatness of God's power. Look at Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. Verse 19, it says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, And authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul prays that you would know the greatness of God's power, he says it's immeasurable. I want you to consider this. If you think about every power in life today or in history, every power has a limit, doesn't it? Uh, You can measure it. Maybe it's a lot. Maybe it's a little. But it can be measured. It can be measured by title. It can be measured by time. It can be measured by city or by country. Every form of power that you and I know can be measured. You think about the Roman Empire. This was the power in Paul's day. And Paul knew this power well. As we look at the book of Ephesians, most scholars think he writes this letter from house arrest due to the Roman officials. And so Paul knew the power of the Roman Empire. But he says this about the power of God, that you can't measure God's power. You see, the Roman Empire, eventually it would die, right? You go to Rome today, it's not an empire, it's a city. Those emperors that were really powerful in Paul's day that had him in house arrest, those officials, they went on to die. And even before they died, they didn't have power over the whole world. You see, all power has a limit but God's. And that God, his power is immeasurable. It knows no bounds. That space, that time, that circumstance can't limit God's power. And that Paul is saying that you should know that power. That this is the power towards you who believe. That if you believe in Jesus, you have access to this power. Look at the verse. It says, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You think about that. Why does he bring up the resurrection? Why does he bring up the resurrection when he's talking about the immeasurable greatness of God's power and that you should know that? He does that because in the resurrection, Jesus didn't just come back from the dead. He was defeating death. And that if you are in Christ, that death will not have the last word for you. That one day you'll be raised with Christ. Jesus said this in John 11. He said, the one who believes in me will live even though They die. Charles Spurgeon said this. I love it. It says, Jesus has turned the tomb into a bed. That when you die, just wake up. Do you ever consider that? This is the power of the resurrection according to those who believe. You see, for the Christian, even death, it's not something to look forward to, but it's also not something that you fear. Why? Because you know a power that is immeasurable, that is great, that raised Jesus from the dead, that will do the same for you, that it even changes your death and your perspective on it. We sing a song in Christ alone. We sang it last Sunday. It says this, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. You see, God's power is so great. It's not even limited by death. And that in Christ, when you begin to know this, right, your core begins to be affected by this, You don't even have to fear death. That your faith in Jesus causes fears to fade. It's a reality in your life. You see all of life differently because of his great power. Do you know his power? Do you know the power of the resurrection? Is it, listen, is it something you only consider on Easter once a year? Or do you wake up realizing God has granted me not because of me, But because of Jesus' power over everything in life doesn't mean I'll always succeed. Doesn't mean everything will go well. But ultimately, I know that even in the end, that I have power in Jesus. Do you know that? Do you consider that? He continues, verse 21. Look at that verse. He tells us he's not only raised, Jesus, he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Uh, Many times when we think of Jesus, we picture him on the cross. We picture him with little kids uh, gathered around him, right? Maybe some of you, you picture him as raised to life because that's what we see in the movies and that's what we see on the pictures. And all of those things are true. But do you know where Jesus is today? Where's Jesus today? Is he in Jerusalem? Does he have some little kids gathered around him? Is he on the cross? Is he just raised to life? No, Jesus today is ruling and reigning in heaven. The scripture says he's seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority. Look at the text. He has power over every rule, authority, power, dominion, name. He's far above it. Right, His power will never end. Verse 22, everything is under his feet. It makes me think of Hebrews 10, where it says that one day that all the enemies of God will be made his footstool. Can you just imagine that? All the enemies of God, the most cruel person you can think of, the most cruel power you can think of, that seems like it will never stop. I mean, as you look at the landscape of our world, it's towering over everything. That in the end, Hebrews 10 says, that will be made the footstool of Jesus. It's his footstool. That as you think about Jesus, you need to think about the cross. You need to think about him with kids. You need to think about him as raised. But you also need to consider that today he is in heaven he's ruling, he's reigning, that nothing passes him by, that nothing shocks him. Jesus is powerful, and Paul wants you to know that power. I, I know as we think about our country, particularly in an election season, particularly as bad things happen, you have ISIS, and you have all these things, and, and all these controversies, and all these trials, and all these sufferings in our world, and even in our country. Right? I think yesterday or Friday, an explosion in New York, and it seemed like somebody did it intentionally. I mean, it's just like one thing after another, and and you look at our political climate, and you're like, man, I don't know who to vote for, like which one? I mean, is it going to get any better? And you look at our country, and maybe you think, you know, at one point, we were the home team. At one point, this nation was founded on Christian values, and now it kind of seems like we're the visiting team. And listen, I don't know if that was ever the case, but you need to know we're always the home team because of Jesus. That you're never the visiting team because in the end, all the enemies of this world that seem like they can't be stopped will be put under his feet like a footstool. And that this says that he's been given to us, the church, That he's our head. So Jesus isn't some just distant dictator who's powerful. No, he's your leader. He's the leader of our home team. No matter what country you live in, no matter what city you reside in. That he has been given to you, the church, his body. That that's where you stand. That's the power in which you stand if you know Jesus. It's a measurable power. That the mark of the believer, the mark of our church, the mark of the church, no matter what happens in our world, no matter what happens in our country, we stand in the power of Christ. And Paul is praying that you would know that. Like to your core, that you would know that, you would experience that, you would be transformed by it. And I know as we think about this, a lot of us just know survival. I mean, a lot of us, if we just look at our mourning, I mean, we survived to get here, right? I mean, the kids vomited on you right before you came. You had to change shirts. I mean, it seems like your keys, you can always find them except Sunday mornings. It seems like your shirts, I mean, they're always perfectly crisp and ironed, except when you need to find one on Sunday morning, right? You just survived just to make it here today. And you feel like maybe all of life is survival. I mean, just give me a cup of coffee, right? And I'll survive. You need to know that Paul is praying for you, that your life would be more than that, that you would know his power, that you would know it informationally, that you would know it experientially, that it would transform your life and your circumstances. So, how do we live that out? How do we access that? I want to give you three questions as we close our time together. The first one is this What area of knowledge do you need to grow in? And the reality is, as we look at knowledge informationally, experientially, transformationally, all of us in this room, we need to grow in that. We haven't arrived in that, right? Uh, Some of you, as you look at your life, you need to grow informationally. You need to read the Bible for yourself. Uh, Podcasts are great. Coming here is great. You need to go home and you need to read it yourself. You need to know what God says about who he is, his person, his work, his character, and his nature. You need to grow informationally. We want to help you with that. That's why we have that study guide in the back so you can take this home and you can write down answers to questions. You can read little commentaries so you can know informationally what the book of Ephesians is all about and what it says about God. Some of you, uh, many times in your life, you tell me or you tell somebody else, Tim, I just feel dry spiritually. I just kind of feel like God is, is distant. Do you pray about that? Do you pray, God, I want to experience you. I want to I know you. I want it to be the core of my being. Do you pray for that? Do you let God into those times where you are dry, you are distant? Do you ask him to enlighten the eyes of your heart, to open you up to that? Many times when we feel dry or distant, those are the times we don't pray. Those are the very times we need to pray. Paul is praying that for the Ephesians. He's praying this for you, that you would know this experientially. That we wouldn't just consume facts, that we would contribute, that we would connect with God and the body of Christ. Do you need to grow in that area? And some of you, man, you grew up doing the sword drills, and if I said Obadiah 1 verse 3, I mean, you're there, right? Some of you don't even know where Obadiah is, right? You need to grow in your informational knowledge. But some of you do know where it is, and you can be like, damn, I got this. I know what it says. But is it invading your work? Is it invading your home? Is it invading your sin? Is it? Do you need to grow experientially? Listen, all of us need to grow transformationally. We need to always come back to knowledge of God and be changed by it. What area do you need to grow in, and what steps can you take today Second question, what plans in your life would change if you knew more of God's calling? Remember, true knowledge is transformational. So if you knew God's calling in the future, if you knew how you were set apart as his glorious inheritance forever, how would that change your today? How would that change what you're striving for, what you're preparing for, what you're packing for? What does your calendar say about that? What does your bank account say about that? What needs to change about that to reflect your future hope? The third thing, what fears in your life would fade if you knew more of God's power? The fears that preoccupy your heart and mind. A fear of man. A desire for approval. Jesus has power over that. Listen, I want you to think about this. If if Jesus has the name that is above every name. Not only in this age, but in the ages to come. If that's the power in the name of Jesus, and in Jesus through the cross, He says you are forgiven and redeemed. Who else do you need to prove yourself to? What other name do you need to get an affirmation from? Your father, your friends, your employer. Jesus is the name that is above every name in this age and the age to come. That fear should fade as you know God's power. Fear of government, Jesus has power over that. He's far above any rule. Fear of death, Jesus has power even over death. That there's no guilt in life. There's no fear in death. But the schemes of man, the powers of hell, they can't pluck you from his hand. You stand in the power of Christ, the resurrected, victorious Christ. Amen? That's what you stand in. You don't even have to fear death. You have the world in checkmate. There's nothing that can happen to you that should cause you to fear. Because you have faith in Jesus. You have power as a result of that. This is... The Mark of the Christian. This is the mark of the church. This is who you should become, right? The first part of Ephesians 1, Paul lays out, this is who you are, but then he prays for, this is who I want you to become. I want you to know God. We need to pray for that, and so let's do that now. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these truths, God, about who you are and how you want us to know you and how there's power in that how there is provision in that and god i pray this morning that all the men and this women in this room no matter what our circumstances we would treasure knowing you for those that don't know you that we would trust you for the first time that we can't have power we can't have hope if we don't have jesus And so, God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, who hasn't met you for the first time, that by your spirit you would draw them to you in this moment, that we would pray for that collectively, even in this moment. And, God, if we do know you, that we would live like we know you, that we would see the reality of knowing God, of being changed by our knowledge of you, and see how that transforms everything about our lives that we don't even have to fear because we stand in your power. God, may, may that be a reality for us this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we ask, amen.